Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. Last week on the podcast, AAF's Director of Labor Market Policy, Isabel Soto, joined us to discuss the House-passed version of the Protecting the Right to Organize, or the PRO Act. This discussion is incredibly timely, as President Biden just included the PRO Act in his new two-plus trillion dollar spending bill, the so-called American Jobs Plan. Joining us this week to discuss is AF's President Douglas Holtaken and special guest, Labor Attorney Michael Lotito, who is the co-chair of the Littler Workplace Policy Institute. We've asked Michael on today to help us understand how this legislation might impact labor employment law. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Kyle. All right, so let's jump right into it today. Uh, We have a lot to talk about, not a lot of time. But Doug, would you start us off with a brief overview of the PRO Act's key provisions and also what are its supporters aiming to accomplish here? Well, certainly um, for those who followed our work on this, we have focused on three big provisions. One is the federal preemption of state right to work laws. All states would be uh, barred from having a right to work law. The second is the so-called joint employer provision, for example, all McDonald's employees to be viewed as being employees of McDonald's itself and not the franchise in which they work. And third, the, the ABC test for classifying a worker as an employee or an independent contractor. All of these have the intent of making it easier to identify a traditional employee-employer relationship and then making that relationship be a union. And that, in the end, I think is what the bill is about. Interesting. Michael, starting at a 30,000 feet here, um, would this bill accomplish its aims? And on the other side, what are the key impacts that it might have? Well, I think that one of the aims uh, is to increase uh, union market penetration. You know, the the high watermark was back around 1955 when they represented 35 percent of the private sector. Today, it's about six percent. Um, Again, in the private sector, they obviously want to increase that market share and get it back up to 15, 20 percent. Over time, will the PRO Act enable them to do that? Um, Yeah, I think it would, because um, there's a lot of analogies here to uh, what happened when the Wagner Act was originally passed in 1935 by FDR uh, during the Great Depression and us coming out of the pandemic um, uh, recession right now. Um, And there's a lot of similarities between what President Biden is trying to do and what President Roosevelt was trying to do. And President Biden has made it crystal clear, and I suspect he'll make it crystal clear again later on this afternoon, that he believes to the depth of his soul uh, that union jobs are the way to go. That's his fundamental belief. He kind of reminds me of my father, God rest his soul. Uh, You know, that was a different stage. It was a different era. But if you want to increase union market penetration, the PRO Act gives organized labor from what we can determine in carefully reading the PRO Act about 51 different changes to our labor laws today to enable them to do exactly that. Wow. Doug, did you want to jump in there at all? No, I mean, it tells you just how little we've really actually covered. Right. We've talked about three things. It's a sweeping piece of legislation. It's why it deserves more attention. This would literally overturn the American workplace as we know it. Yeah, on my podcast with Isabel last week, we just talked about those three things, but it sounds like there's so much more to cover here. Um, It's a fundamental change in in policy as well as the law, because the law today 
you know, recognizes that employees have the right to join and not join a union. And there's a balance with respect to what the union can do, the employer can do. You know, we can talk about around the edges whether or not it's the correct balance, but it's the balance that we've had, you know, for a long time, at least since 1959 with Landry and Griffin. And, you know, that built upon the Taft-Hartley in 1947. Um, but this fundamentally changes our policy in the United States. And it basically is going to say, we not only encourage unionization, but once people get into that union and we will give them multiple opportunities in order to make that happen, we're gonna make sure that they're kept there. And if the employer doesn't reach an agreement, we're gonna impose one on the employer. That is a radical change in the law, but it is a radical fundamental change in workplace policy. So let's dig a little bit more into some of this. Uh, Michael, you've spoken a lot about the elimination of secondary boycotts as part of this. Quickly, you simply stated, what is a secondary boycott for those who might not know? If my target is A, how do I put additional pressure on A? I take a look at A's supply chain and I say, building on what Doug said a minute ago, let's go and picket all of the McDonald's franchisees as separate businesses to put additional pressure on McDonald's to give us neutrality and card check and maybe make that a provision of all the franchise agreements. Well, who in the world would ever agree to that? Well, you go to whoever makes the hamburger patties and you go to whoever makes the buns and whoever makes the pickles, whoever makes the, uh, the tomatoes and all the other things that go in there and you begin to enmesh the entire supply chain as a vehicle to put pressure on the target. And what it will do is it will enable unions to organize companies that will wind up giving the union their employees to stop the pain, as opposed to really focusing on the union organizing the employees. Organizing companies is more effective than organizing employees if you get what you want. <laughs> so the PRO Act legalized these types of boycotts. Have they ever been? legal in the past. What's the history here? Well, there's a lot of history and I'll be, I'll be pithy. You know, we've had secondary boycotts and other kinds of pressure tactics that go all the way back to, you know, the early 1800s. A um, lot of activity, the 1890s, the famous Pullman strike, it was a Hatter strike. If you go back into labor history, is example after example after example where these kinds of secondary activities have been used uh, to great effect. The Pullman strike, for example, essentially shut down our transportation network uh, throughout the country because they also went, you know, for everybody that was using every railroad company that was using a Pullman car. Um, you can see the impact that that would have. Mail couldn't even go out. Employers fought back. Um, they got a great deal of success in the courts. These were unlawful conspiracies. When the Sherman Act was passed in 1890, there were efforts to make this antitrust. The famous Hatter's case, they got treble damages. The early 1900s, you know, something like $225,000, which today is probably the equivalent of a couple of billion. Um, I mean, it's a big deal. But then in 1935, when we enacted the National Labor Relations Act, the secondary boycotts uh, were legal. But then from 35 to 47, uh, these activities intensified. And in 47 in Taft-Hartley, we inserted union unfair labor practice into the statute, a section called 8B4, uh, that made them 
an unfair labor practice that made them unlawful. There were loopholes. And then with Landry Griffin in 1959, some of those loopholes were changed. And that's basically the extent of the law. So it's really nothing new. Um, but by eliminating, as the PRO Act does, these secondary boycotts, you give unions incredible leverage in order to attack companies. And not to go too much long here, I guess I lied to you when I said I was going to be pithy. Um, but if you go back to the fundamental policy of the National Labor Relations, and it hasn't changed um, in these 80 or 90 years, and it's worth just reading for a second, bear with me. Some labor organizations have the intent or the necessary effect of burdening or obstructing commerce by preventing the free flow of goods in such commerce through strikes and other forms of industrial unrest or through concerted activities like secondary boycotts. You obstruct commerce. You put a big ship in the Suez Canal and you block it for a week. That's an obstruction of commerce. Yeah. And the National Labor Relations Act was designed to stop obstructing commerce. And the trade-off was to give people the right and to encourage, as the statute says, the practice and procedure of collective bargaining. And unions today always say, National Labor Relations encourages the practice and procedure of collective bargaining. But the trade-off was you get into the union, but we don't want to obstruct commerce. Mm -hmm. And when you're coming out of pandemic, when you've got 18 million people that aren't in the workforce that were, you know, about a year ago, the last thing in my mind that you want is the obstruction of commerce. Yeah. Make no mistake about it. This bill permits unions to obstruct commerce in order to achieve their objectives. Yeah. So let's stick with stick with the economics here for a second. What's the potential impact that could happen from these boycotts if they become legal on the economy, both in a short term and long term? I think you know the answer to that, Kyle. What what happens is you uh, attack the supply chain and you cannot deliver goods and services. Well, the coronavirus just attacked the supply chain in the United States, precluded people from getting to work, precluded delivering goods and services, and we all know what that feels like. Imagine having that as a persistent threat every year, every day. That's what's at stake. And so um, this this is a really big deal in the in the economics of how the United States produces goods and services. Mm -hmm. So in the short term, it could really affect how we come out of this pandemic on you know the economic term. And then the long term, it's going to continue to have those effects. Uh, no question about it. Right? You've got essentially on a regular basis an unpredictable interruption of the capacity to deliver your goods and services. That You stop the trucks from bringing in the supplies or you stop the workers from showing up at work. That's that's what the coronavirus has done. We now understand where it is and what it is. But this would happen throughout the economy it would be allowed and you couldn't forecast it. And so it, it would make a, uh, an enormous impact on the growth path of the United States. Mm -hmm. Doug, there was a part of me with the economics question there that wanted to ask for Twizzler's explanation, you know, using Twizzlers to explain it to everybody, but. Explain with Twizzlers. I mean, imagine, look at all the good stuff that goes into a Twizzler. It, and it's a magical recipe that requires exactly the right ingredients and exactly the right proportions on a particular schedule. And then they last forever. <laughs> and we wouldn't have that. And so yes, uh, I'm concerned. <laughs> I mean, just think for a second, what would happen if the joint employer standard, which is in the bill, uh, became law, uh, which would go a long way to destroying the franchise business model? That's you're awesome. no longer going to be a franchisee. You're essentially going to be a worker for a franchisor. And franchising 
has been a tremendous, tremendous effort, um, a great, um, uh, wonderful story to enable individuals to run their own businesses. Many women and minorities are in those positions. It gives them a slice of America. It's a story that's starting to be told more and more and more. The economic viability as a result of it has just been fantastic. Shut it down. Franchises were responsible for more employment growth in the expansion after the Great Recession, our last recovery, than any other single uh, business form. So that's what's at stake. I mean, and, and it would end the franchise model. So, I mean, if you think about it, franchises are, are, are a great economic trade. You give me the brand and I get to run the business. I didn't have to create the brand. That's a hard thing to do. You get to use that brand to start a business. You get to accumulate capital. You hire people. You succeed. They get a return on their brand because they take they produce it. It's, it's perfect. And Doug sees it from the economic perspective. I see it from the labor perspective. And watching the SEIU, for example, um, go after these organizations, um, you know, filing these baseless charges and dealing with all of these things, going after small business operators, making life miserable. You know, here in San Francisco, I've seen all of the demonstrations. I've seen the damage that's been done to these buildings, all in the name, you know, of worker rights and worker freedom. Cut me a break. Yeah, I'm sure we can keep going on with that. But let's turn now to how the PRO Act would impact day-to-day labor relations. So how would this law affect the practical operations of businesses? Well, I think um, many businesses um, have not invested uh, very much in what I like to call the issue-free environment. Um, I don't want anybody to be union-free. I want everybody to be issue-free. Um, and you do that by showing respect and dignity to your people and making sure that your BOSSs are really effective at that as opposed to double SOBs backwards. I mean, that's that's really what it is that we're trying to do here. If the PRO Act is passed, companies are going to have to take a look at how do they put together their supply chain? What's going to happen if the supply chain is hit with secondary activity? How do they begin to educate all of the components of the supply chain? When the supply chain goes to the target and says, make this stop, what in the world are you going to do? How do you make it stop? If you're in the franchise business model, what do you do? Does the franchisor decide to stop adding franchisee? What's going to happen to the value of the franchisees when they try to sell it or pass it on to their kids? You know, it's going to have those kinds of impacts. We'll get to the the PRO Act uh, provisions with the ABC test in a couple of minutes. But you know, you go down further with respect to these operational issues. Who are your supervisors? They change the definition of a supervisor. So you have few of them. What are you going to do um, in the event you, you lose an election? Um, you know, the unions were very, very smart. This is different than EFCA, where you lost your right to vote in the first place, and the cards were the whole king, and you just counted the cards. They knew that they couldn't do that again because they got killed um, with the messaging of giving up your right to vote. So in this situation, you know, they have an election, the union loses the election. And what happens is a minor digression. There's some kind of a problem with the election. And what does the labor board say? They count the cards. Hmm. So you've still voted. It's just that your vote has been nullified by the cards. So it's very um, uh, thoughtful in the way they went about this. And then you wind up getting a contract by an arbitrator imposed upon you. It's going to last for two years. Well, I'm going to tell you, that's going to change your business model. And it's not only going to change the particular operation where this union activity occurred, but it's going to wind up impacting 
all of your employees because then the union is going to shop the contract that was imposed upon you by the arbitrator. Hmm. So for those who are younger than me, they, they don't remember the era of the 60s and the 70s where there were large union contracts. They were multi-year. They were overlapping and they had, you know, uh, wage and price uh, escalators in them. So if, if the CPI went up, the wages automatically went up and and they would literally settle one such contract, use that as the model for the next one, up it some, use that for the next one, up it some. So you get this sort of rolling cost shock that rolls through the economy. It makes it very hard to have a, a good inflation-free growth environment. And the United States did not have a good inflation-free growth environment in the late 60s and 70s. It took a lot of work to, to get that under control. We'd be going back to that kind of a risk. Mm, yeah, what about costs? Would this drive up the costs for businesses? Would, would there be additional compliance costs? Compliance costs, probably the least of their problems, um, wage costs. The, the, the real purpose here is, is to get a greater cut for labor, broadly defined, and for individual employees. So the costs are going up. There's no doubt that the mm -hmm. costs are going to go then, up. And there well, are issues here with respect to income inequality that are discussed. There's issues with respect to differences uh, with respect to men and women. I mean, those are serious policy issues, too. I'm not sure that they're going to be resolved by passing the PRO Act. Um, and it's interesting, you know, Doug, I'm way outside of my comfort zone here, but, you know, I hear about, oh, inflation's coming back, inflation's coming back. After all, we're going to spend $10 trillion in about 16 months. Maybe that'll have an impact on inflation. Even a dope like me has got that one figured out. But what, what people may not realize is what is the inflationary impact of fundamentally changing our approach to labor relations? Because remember what I said, we're not just changing the law. We're changing our fundamental policy approach to labor relations and unionization in the country. That clearly is going to have an impact on costs. It's clearly going to have an impact on business models. And it seems to me these imposed collective bargaining agreements are also going to have an impact. All of that together says to me inflation. What yeah. about on the flip side here? I mean, we've talked about businesses. What about workers? I mean, how would it affect the lives of workers? Well, the first thing of workers in 27 states, individuals do not have to pay dues, even if they're covered by a union contract. The first thing that happens is those individuals are going to wind up now paying dues to the union. Maybe not the initial contract when the law is passed, because I don't know if you can interfere with that contract. But some of those contracts say the law changes, then automatically individuals have to start paying. A lot of those employees are going to say, what's this all about? When I signed up here, I didn't think I was going to have to pay dues and fees. I wouldn't have taken the job in the first place. Now you're telling me I got to do that? So that's one impact. You know, what else does it do for the workers? Well, some workers may say this is the greatest thing in the world since sliced bread because they're working for a company because the bosses really are double SOBs backwards because the company is not concerned about their livelihoods because the company is very indiscriminate in the way they operate. They're not a caring, nurturing environment. For those types of individuals, they may say, hey, the union makes a lot of sense. And if it does, God bless them. But for a lot of other people, they're going to say, why am I now involved in this union? How did this happen? Let's see. The union came around. All of my contact information was given to the union. Um, I don't even know if I'm ever going to get the content information back. I don't know going to have to use, how they're going to use the contact information. I voted against the union. My colleagues voted against the union. And now I'm in a union anyway because they counted the cards that the union said didn't matter when I signed them. And then 
I'm now in a contract that was imposed by an arbitrator that tells us all of the things we're supposed to do or not do, and I have to pay dues and fees. I thought the country was about freedom. I, I think that's the key, uh, Kyle. I mean, we are in a regime which, as Michael said earlier, emphasizes balance. Balance between the right to organize and the right to have a free flow of commerce. When you have that kind of balance, you, you have choices, and this eliminates choices. And um, in doing so, it's fine if the powers that be make the choices you make anyway, but it's not so fine if they don't, and, it's, and it can't be true for everyone. Gotcha. What about, what about privacy? I mean, does that play a factor here? Well, I think the privacy thing that we touched upon is the names, address, and what have you. Um, so clearly, there are privacy concerns, which is somewhat, somewhat ironic. I mean, in this day and age of hacking and what have you, we're all, I think, legitimately extremely concerned about privacy. And uh, and here, you know, you can just throw that out uh, out the window uh, because we, we have a greater good. And I think that, to me, is one of the problems with the PRO Act is that the people that are proposing it are doing it, at least from people like the president, with such moral authority. I know I'm right. There is no need for regular order. We do not need a hearing in the House or the Senate. Let's sneak this through through budget reconciliation, which, by the way, I don't think they can, unless the parliamentarian has really gone goofy on us. Um, and I don't think she will. It's like, really? Really? And, you know, at the end of the day, it's also about increased political power for unions. Unions made a strategic determination about 20 years ago, rather than to invest in trying to really organize folks, to invest in politicians that will help them achieve their objectives. This is the biggest potential payoff in history. Joe Biden has said, I want to be the most labor president in history. If he pulls this off, his pledge is secure. He will be. And that means what? More union members mean more union dues, which means more money to spend on politicians, which means more union power. At the end of the day, it's really not about money. It's about power. So, Michael, I want to go back and talk about something that you mentioned a little while ago, which is the ABC test. It's another area we hear a lot about. It redefines how an employee can, can be classified as an independent contractor. California recently passed into law something similar to this. The PRO Act includes this, as I mentioned, but some are saying it wouldn't have any impact. What is the argument here, and do you agree? Well, let me start by just saying this. The PRO Act with the ABC test means that the law of California is now the law in the country. If that doesn't scare people, I don't know what will. Pretty frightening. And people say, well, you don't have to worry about it because it's only in the National Labor Relations Act. Yeah, but once you get into a collective bargaining agreement, the collective bargaining agreement is going to trump most of all of the state laws with respect to terms and conditions of employment. So it's an extremely simplistic argument to make. Doug mentioned choice. The ability to decide whether or not you want to work as an employee or work as a freelancer is one of those fundamental choices with respect to work design today. I've never seen it more important in all of the years that I've done this work because life is so unbelievably blip and complex and individuals need maximum flexibility depending upon their circumstances. Um, and that means that we've got tons and tons of freelancers and it's an increasing part of our workforce, and it should be encouraged. And the ABC test shuts down. Mm -hmm. Doug, what do you see as the broader economic impact of this reclassification? 
Well, I think it it does uh, two things. Number one, it makes it more expensive because you know you're you're gonna have to classify people as employees. They're gonna get the benefits that comes with uh, full time employment, and uh, you didn't build that into your cost structure. That's that's gonna be something you have to adjust to. It makes it more difficult to manage your workforce. Uh, you don't have flexibilities, as Michael mentioned. Those go on both sides. Employees need them. Employers can take advantage of them. I, I have a freelancer who likes to work 15 hours a week and can fill these shifts. That'd be great. That's not gone. I have to have a full-time person. I got to figure out what to do with them for the other 25 hours, which I really don't have the budget for. Now what do I do? So you're really taking some tools out of the hands of, of both sides. That's that's usually a bad decision. And you're making the interaction more expensive. And if you have a more expensive labor market, that's the, the bedrock of the cost structure. Everything's getting more expensive. All right, let's take a step back and look at an example to see what the PROAX impact could be. There is a high-profile unionization effort in Alabama right now. Uh, we've all seen the news stories or at least heard about the news stories. How would the PROAX affect this effort? Well, I don't want to talk about that specific situation, but let me just talk more generally um, and people can apply it as they deem appropriate. The union files an election petition today. The employer um, has the right to fully participate in that process. The employer says that the unit of uh, voters that the union wants is inappropriate. They come to an agreement that it's a different unit. They work out between them whether it's going to be a mail ballot and in person. They have an election. The company wins. The union may file objections, what have you. Maybe there's a rerun. If there's serious unfair labor practices, maybe there's a bargaining order. The people can negotiate, but they're not going to have conditions imposed because Section 8D of the statute says Nothing in the statute requires a party to agree to a proposal or require the making of concession. That's the law today, the PRO Act. You file an election petition, the employer is not entitled to participate in the NLRB hearing at all. They have no standing. So the smaller unit that the union wanted is gonna be the unit that the labor board is gonna agree on. The employer has no say in how the election is gonna be conducted, mail, electronic, in person, at another location, what the times are. The election is going to be much faster, probably in about 20 days. The employer before brought together employees and talked about dues, fees, fines, assessments, and the possibility of strikes. Now the employer cannot bring individuals together in order to talk about dues, fees, fines, assessments, and the possibility of strikes. And the employer is effectively deprived of their 8C rights because if the employer makes a technical mistake and the union loses an election, then the employer is going to be told that nonetheless the union is won because those cards are going to wind up being counted. And instead of being able to negotiate a deal where you don't have to agree to proposal require the making of a concession, the union is going to tell the employer, if you don't agree, I'm going to take it to arbitration. And the arbitrator is then going to award a contract that's going to last for two years. That's what the PRO Act does, including increasing penalties with private rights of action for people that are alleged to have been discriminated against based upon union activity, including for personal liability on directors and officers of the organization, which is all designed to do what? Get people to shut up, including taking us back to the old persuader days so that lawyers like us can't have the kind of relationship that we have with our clients because it interferes with the attorney-client relationship, which is why the ABA opposed the persuader provision when the Department of Labor under President Obama suggested it, which a federal district judge said it was rotten to its core. But since in Washington, 
no bad idea ever goes away, rotten to its core, has found its way into the Pro Act. <laughs> Michael, it seems like a lot of these provisions affect, in a fundamental way, the employer-employee relationship. Is all of this even legal at the end of the day? I mean, can the federal government really overturn right-to-work laws, for example? Well, the federal government put in 14B of the National Labor Relations Act, giving states the right to uh, decide if they wanted to be right to work, and 27 of them have, you know, it can be taken away uh, legislatively in the interest of, you know, interstate commerce. Um, I'm sure there might be a challenge or two, but there's also a practical problem. A lot of people believe in state rights. Um, you ask, uh, you know, progressives, let's, let's enact a federal law that uh, has sick leave provisions in it so that all employers know what the rule of the game is throughout the country. Not in your life, not in your life. We need to make sure that the cities and the states can act their own stuff. Let's have a brand new minimum wage, $11, $12, whatever you want, but let's have a preemption effect so that everybody gets the same stuff. Not in your life, not on your life. We wanna make the same. Well, let's make sure that states have the right to decide if they want to be right to work. Not in your life, not on your life. There's a certain hypocrisy to all of that. And I think one of the reasons why certain senators have not supported the PRO Act um, is because they're in right to work states. And if those senators were to support the PRO Act, they're basically saying to the people in their state, hey, guess what? I'm in Washington now. I don't really have to listen to you. See how long that lasts. So, Doug, one final question for you, and it goes a little bit to what Michael just mentioned there about the senators being hesitant to support this bill. The House is obviously now on board as they're including it in their their latest spending package. What are the chances the PRO Act will pass the Senate? Is this going to become law? I don't think so. Uh, Certainly, they don't have the 60 votes they would need if they were to do this in regular order. I'd concur with Michael that, that they're not going to get to do it in budget reconciliation, which would get the threshold down to 51. And so as it stands, this is not going to become law, but they want to take votes on it as a sign of the solidarity with their union backers. That's a, a political must. And it does run the risk that unless you talk about what it really is and really lay out the implications so that people understand the votes that are being taken, that it'll slip in someday, right? A bad idea should be exposed for being exactly that. And then people are are better informed. And my fear has been that after last year, when the PRO Act was the subject of a lot of attention, this year it was essentially a stealth uh, initiative and uh, no one really noticed when the House passed it and it's now sitting over at the Senate. And the last thing you wanna do is treat something that is such a fundamental change in the way we handle the worker employer relationship with the United States as something that doesn't merit debate. And and so let's have the debate. As you mentioned, this is an important conversation. Today's conversation was really great. I enjoyed it. I hope our listeners enjoyed as well. Doug, Michael, thank you both for taking the time for this very important conversation. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for giving me an excuse to put on one of my expensive ties. I mean, they just got to sit upstairs and never get to use them. I didn't want Doug to have a tie, and I didn't have a tie on. So, hey, I'll do one of these podcasts, whatever you want. I can wear a tie. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's just the lighting, but I think it's a purple tie. So I think we all got the memo to wear purple today. For, for the- <laughs> Well, it is. It, it, Easter's right around the corner. So, True. you know, a purple <laughs> Easter egg is, is called for. That's what my granddaughters want anyway. <laughs> Very good. Well, well thank I, you again. I appreciate you doing this for us. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.